0: Right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here with us. If you haven't been with us for a while either, just want you to know we are in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians. It's our normal habit here at Free Money Free to take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we really do believe the Bible is the Word of God. As such, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. So this morning, that means we are in Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. Let me pray, then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together once again. We're reminded, even just thinking about events that are happening globally around the world, we think about wars that are taking place and conflict and persecution, we think of the freedom that we have here to gather and we want to thank you for that. We pray that we would not waste it. We pray that we would delight in the ability to gather together and to study your word, to worship and to pray. Lord, we pray that we would be people who, with eager expectation, come to your word this morning, waiting for you to speak. And Lord, that is our prayer, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak clearly and loudly and unequivocally to us, just letting us know who you are and how we can worship you more clearly. And so, Father, I'm, I'm praying here because I know that I am weak and I need your power. Lord, I need your spirit to be at work, and I know that's true for every person in this room. We come to you and we gladly admit that we are weak We have nothing we can do on our own. We desperately need you. So, God, we pray that you would work through us this morning jars of clay, that you would demonstrate your power by speaking to us and giving us your word and giving us hope. And Father, we just pray that you would glorify your name and give us encouragement. So, In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, in the 1990s, there was no shortage of memorable commercial campaigns. From Where's the Beef to Yo Quiero Taco Bell to Got Milk to Help, I've Fallen and I Can't Get Up. There were many commercials created during the 1990s that still stick in the head decades later. But the commercial campaign I remember the most, perhaps because of my sports loving tendencies, was the Gatorade campaign Be Like Mike. The campaign featured the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. That's not debatable, by the way. Don't come at me with LeBron James or Steph Curry. Jordan was and is the original GOAT, the greatest of all time. And those Gatorade commercials prominently featured the basketball greatness of Michael Jordan, with the basic idea being that we want to be like Mike. We want to be able to dunk the basketball like Mike. We want to fly through the air like Mike. We want to be cool like Mike. And more to the point of the commercial, we want to drink Gatorade like Mike. The genius of the commercial wasn't just the simplicity of the advertising slogan, Be Like Mike, but also the jingle that accompanied the campaign. The refrain of the jingle was not complicated. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. Oh, if I could be like Mike. It wasn't exactly Shakespeare put the song, but it was catchy. In fact, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, I can still hear this song in my head today. But it wasn't the jingle that wrote me in all those years ago. Growing up in the 1990s, I really did want to be like Michael Jordan. For a teenage boy who loved sports, he was the epitome of coolness. Not only was he this great basketball player, but he also had a certain swagger that appealed to middle school boys in both inner city Chicago or rural southern Iowa. But having said all that, you don't have to be a basketball fan or a fan of Michael Jordan or a sports fan. You don't even have to have been alive in the 1990s to understand the appeal of the Be Like Mike campaign. Because 30 plus years later, we still have an obsession with celebrities and a desire to be like them. In fact, if anything, our desire to be like celebrities has only grown in a social media world. There's a reason why celebrity gossip websites flourish and why we label certain social media stars as influencers. Because culturally speaking, we envy the lives of the rich, the famous, the gifted. We may not want to be like Mike anymore. He's kind of old at this point. But we often want to live the life of celebrities, this entertainer or that athlete or this musician. And while I certainly understand that appeal, after all, I remember this commercial from 30-plus years ago, I would argue that most of the people that we want to be like, that we want to emulate, are perhaps not really worthy of our emulation. Take Michael Jordan as an example. He may have been the greatest basketball player of all time, but in retrospect, it didn't seem like he was really all that happy. He was always chasing after the next thing or the next goal, and so it is with most celebrities that we want to be like. Their lives may look shiny and attractive on the outside, but inwardly there's almost always something missing. And it's for that reason I would suggest that perhaps we need a different kind of role model. Rather than striving to be like Mike or striving to be like some social media influencer that has 10 million followers on Instagram, perhaps our goal should be to find someone who's figured out where true joy and true contentment comes from and then try to live like them. And that's where our passage today comes into the picture. In Philippians 2, 19 to 30, we have this kind of random section in the book of Philippians in which Paul talks about his travel plans and the travel plans of his gospel companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But as random as those travel plans may seem, as Paul talks about those plans and about his partners in the gospel, I think he gives us tremendous insight into their character and into his own. And as he does that, I think he gives us a picture of what it would look like or what it does look like to actually live for Christ in real life. Or to say it another way, I think he gives us some role models to follow. And so here's what I'm going to suggest this morning. In Philippians 2, 19-30, I think Paul gives us some concrete examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to do this in the real world. And my suggestion to us this morning is that we should try to follow those examples, because in living like the people found in Philippians 2, 19-30, I'm convinced that we can find true and lasting joy. Now, I'm willing to grant you, be like Epaphroditus does not have quite the same ring as be like Mike, but in the end... Living like Epaphroditus or Timothy or Paul will bring far more joy and far more contentment. So I'd say let's stand here. Philippians two nineteen to thirty. If you're physically able, standing is a simple way we can show our reverence for the Word of God. So Philippians two verses nineteen to thirty. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse nineteen. The words are on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But the Word of God says this: I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. To complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now sometimes when we read a book like Philippians, we forget that it's a real letter written by a real guy to real people living in real circumstances. And because we tend to forget that, there are some details in letters like this one that when we read them at first seem odd to us. Why does Paul spend 11 verses talking about his travel plans? talking about the travel plans of his compatriots, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Why does he do that? Doesn't he have bigger theological fish to fry? But when you remember that this is a real letter, written to real people living in real circumstances, content like what we find in verses 19 to 30 makes perfect sense. It's only natural that the Philippians would wonder, will we see you again, Paul? Is anyone going to come and tell us how you're doing or how things are going elsewhere? And what about our boy Epaphroditus? How's he doing? We heard he was sick. Is he better? In the age before the internet and instantaneous communication, it would be perfectly normal for questions like that to be addressed in a letter like this one. Hence, this section in the book of Philippians. Now, typically, a section like this in Scripture is referred to as a travel log section. In other words, it's detailing Paul's travel plans and logistical details. And indeed, that does seem to be the primary purpose of this section of Philippians. Paul wants the Philippians to know that he's sending Epaphroditus to them now, that he hopes to send Timothy soon, and eventually he himself, Paul, hopes to come and see the Philippians too. That's the basic summary, verses nineteen to thirty. But as Paul communicates those travel details, I think he gives us great insight into the character of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and to some degree, he gives us insight into his own character also. And it's those insights that I want us to focus on this morning. So here's the plan. There are two sections. There's a section about Timothy in verses 19 to 24, and then a section about Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. I want to explore each of those two sections and think specifically about the character of those two men. Because as Paul talks about his travel plans, he's going to commend their character. So I think we can learn something from that. And then I want us to think about the character of Paul, because his fingerprints are all over this passage too. So first Timothy, then Epaphroditus, then Paul. That's the outline for this morning. So let's start thinking about Timothy. And in a broad stroke, I think we can summarize what we learn about Timothy by saying this. Timothy was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others in the interest of Jesus Christ. Timothy was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others in the interest of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 19 to 24, the first section here. We see this beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, again, the purpose of verses 19 to 24 is to communicate Paul's plans to send Timothy to the Philippians. As Paul says it in verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. And then as he expands on, on that in verse 23, he hopes to send Timothy as soon as he knows how it's going to go with him. And in other words, once his imprisonment situation clears up, he's going to send Timothy. So this is the plan here. He's going to send Timothy. In short, what we're saying is as Paul is communicating to the Philippians, as soon as I can, I'm going to send Timothy to you. But then in the rest of verses 19 to 23, he communicates why he wants to send Timothy. And as he does so, he gives us valuable insight about who Timothy was as a person. There are a few things that set Timothy apart from other people. He was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. That was verse 20. He prioritized the interest of Christ over his own interest. That's verse 21. And he was a faithful servant in the gospel. That's verse 22. Or to say all that in summary fashion, Timothy was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others and prioritized the interest of Christ above his own. And to be clear, those two things... Caring about others, prioritizing the needs of Christ, those two things go hand in hand. In fact, I want you to listen one more time to verses 20 and 21 and listen carefully because there's something really interesting that happens with the language in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. All right, so in verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy. I have no one like him. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then he expands on that statement in verse 21 by saying, for they all seek their own interests, not those of... Now, what you would expect him to say there is others. He just talked about how Timothy cares about the welfare of others. So you would expect him to finish that phrase by saying, they all care for their own welfare, not those of others. That's what you would think he would say. But instead, Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So why does Paul say it that way? Why does he seemingly exchange the expected word, others, with instead saying Jesus? I think the reason is this. Seeking the interest of others and being genuinely concerned for their welfare is to seek the interest of Christ. To love Christ is to love others. The first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The second is like it. It's like it. Love your neighbors, yourself. So loving God and loving others are intertwined in ways that cannot be separated. To truly love others and put their welfare above your own requires that you first love God. But if you love God, you will love others. Or to say it another way, you cannot love others unless you first have been loved by Christ. But you cannot say that you love Christ and then not love others. And that's where the tapestry of Philippians 2 starts to come together. In Philippians 2, 1-4, Paul tells the Philippians to seek the interest of others. And then in verses 5-11, to he motivates them to do so by pointing to the example of Christ. Now what we're seeing here in verses 19-24 to is Timothy actually doing this. Because he loves Jesus, he is loving others. Because he was generally concerned about the welfare of the gospel and of Christ advancing, he was generally concerned about the welfare of other people. And this made him different. As Paul says it in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now in saying that, I don't think Paul is saying every other person I know is selfish. I think he's just pointing out that Timothy is unique in this way, that he genuinely cared about the welfare of others. Or to say it another way, as verse 21 does, he prioritized the interest of Jesus Christ, which is to seek the welfare of others above his own interests. And that's why Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians, because he knew Timothy cared. Timothy's character was impeccable. But Timothy's character is not the only character worth noting in this passage. I also think it's worth noting the character of Epaphroditus. Again, to paint with a broad stroke, I think we could summarize Epaphroditus' character by saying this, Epaphroditus was willing to risk his life for the sake of the gospel. Look at verses 25 to 30 here. So section two, Epaphroditus section, verse 25 says this, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Here's the story with the Paphroditus. Piecing together what we see in chapter 4 and what we see here in chapter 2, I think what we can gather is probably this is what happened. The Philippians heard about Paul's imprisonment, and they were moved to help Paul. In Paul's day, when someone was in prison, the state would not usually provide for their needs. And so those, those needs had to be provided for by family members, friends, those who cared. And based on what we read in chapter 4, that's where the church at Philippi stepped in. They heard about Paul They saw that he had a need in prison, and so they took up a collection for Paul, and they asked Epaphroditus, who is presumably a member of the congregation in Philippi, to deliver the gift to Paul. As Paul describes it in chapter 4, it was a generous and sacrificial gift by the Philippians, but it was also a generous and sacrificial act by Epaphroditus. In the days before planes, trains, and automobiles, travel was a risky proposition. And in fact, the journey for Epaphroditus proved to be very costly. Twice... Paul emphasizes in this section that Epaphroditus nearly died completing the work of Christ. Now, we're not sure what happened exactly, but somewhere along the way to Rome, that's where Paul was, from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus got sick and he nearly died. And yet, despite his illness, he carried on to complete the work. He was willing to risk his life, that's the language that Paul uses, in order to complete the ministry that God had given to him. Or to use the language of verse 30 more precisely, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul. I think the general meaning of that last clause is the Philippians were physically absent. And so Epaphroditus was completing what they could not do. He was going to be present with Paul in order to minister to him. And as he does so, he risked his life. Like Timothy then, we could say that Epaphroditus was selfless. And that selflessness is not just demonstrating the fact he was willing to die, which is selfless enough, but also in his attitude toward the Philippians. Again, verse 26. Listen to what it says about Epaphroditus there. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. That's some really interesting language. Epaphroditus wasn't distressed that he was ill. He was distressed because the Philippians had heard that he was ill. He knew they were worried about him. And so he wanted to get back to Philippi so they would no longer be concerned. Like Timothy, we see Epaphroditus genuinely caring for their welfare. And like Timothy, we can say that his care for their welfare was driven by a love for Christ. Although Epaphroditus risked his neck for Paul and for the sake of the Philippians, Paul makes it clear, ultimately, he was risking his neck for the sake of Jesus. In other words, it was love for Christ that was his motivation to care for others. It was his love for Christ that motivated him to risk his life. So Epaphroditus too, a man of tremendous character. There's a third person involved in this part of Scripture, and I think his character is worth noting also, and that's Paul. Paul is the one writing here to the Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's clear in Philippians 2, 19-30, he's putting the spotlight on Timothy and Epaphroditus. But even as he does that, I think we learn about his character also. I think we could summarize Paul's character by saying this. Paul was greatly encouraged by the church and greatly encouraging to the church. Now, one of the striking things about the book of Philippians is how much Paul's joy is tied to the joy of others. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul ties his joy to the on growth of those in Christ in Philippi. We see that again here in this passage, verse 19. Verse 19, he says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So why does Paul want to send Timothy? Because he wants to hear how the Philippians are doing. He's confident that once he hears, he will be cheered by news of them. He has a similar motivation in sending Epaphroditus. Verse 28, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul anticipates that when the Philippians see Epaphroditus and realize he's healthy, they will rejoice and they will be less stressed because they're less stressed, he will be less anxious too. Again, Paul's joy is tied down to the Philippians are doing in Christ. As they're flourishing, he's encouraged. This explains also why throughout the book he's trying to get to Philippi. Because he knows if he's with them, he will be encouraged by them. He wants to see them because he knows in seeing them, that will be encouraging to him. So Paul took great encouragement from the church at Philippi. But in this passage, he was also greatly encouraging to the church. And specifically, in these verses, he's greatly encouraging to both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Listen again to the way he describes Timothy in verses 20 to 22. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. Now, throughout the New Testament, you never get the sense that Paul was a flatterer, that he just threw out empty phrase empty praise. But at the same time, you'd say this. Whenever he saw something good, he was never afraid to encourage. And here, he's encouraging Timothy. He talks about Timothy's proven worth. He points out Timothy's selflessness. He says that he's like a son serving beside him in the ministry of the gospel. That is some serious encouragement. Imagine if someone said those types of things to you. I have no one like you. You are so selfless. You've proven your worth. You are like a son or daughter to me. That is some serious encouragement. And Paul has the same disposition toward Epaphroditus. In verse 25, he describes Epaphroditus as his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier in the gospel work. In verse 27, Paul talks about how God had mercy on him, Paul, by sparing Epaphroditus. Yes, God showed mercy to Epaphroditus that he was healed, but it was a mercy to Paul because he loved Epaphroditus that much and it spared him sorrow upon sorrow. And that care and respect for Epaphroditus is seen also in the way he describes Epaphroditus at the end of the section, verses 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, Paul's disposition towards Epaphroditus is one of encouragement. He tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with all joy and honor him. After all, he nearly died for the work of Christ. And in that disposition, we're reminded that not only was Paul encouraged by the church, he was encouraging to the church. And again, this says something about his character. Like Timothy and Epaphroditus, he was focused on others. His joy was tied to others. He specifically sought to encourage others. And it's clear that his love for others was also, just like Timothy and Epaphroditus, based on his love for Jesus. So all told, then, we have three men in Philippians 2, 19-30 of noteworthy character. Timothy who is genuinely concerned about the welfare of others and about the interest of Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus, who risked his life for the sake of the gospel, and Paul, who is encouraged by the church and encouraging to the church. Ultimately, all of them were driven by a love for Christ, and that love for Christ led to a love for others. Now, having said all that, I think it's fair to ask the question this morning, what exactly are we supposed to do with this? If the Word of God is meant to be applied, in other words, we're meant to live differently because of what we read, and it is, The question is, what do we do with a passage like this? Clearly, Paul is not giving us commands to follow here in verses 19 to 30. Nor is he telling us, you should live like Timothy, you should live like Epaphroditus, you should live like me. He's simply describing his travel plans to the Philippians. But in doing so, as he commends Timothy, and as he commends Epaphroditus, and as we're given a window into his own character, I think Paul helps us to see the types of things that we should value and the types of people that we should want to be. And in that way, I would say this. This passage, I think, is extraordinarily applicable. The characteristics of Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul that are demonstrated in this passage are the types of characteristics that we as Christians should want to demonstrate too. And so by way of application this morning, I have three questions for you. And they're related to each of the three people that we see in this passage. So application question number one is simply this. Will you be a Timothy? Will you be a Timothy, caring about the needs of others and prioritizing the interest of Jesus Christ above everything else? Again, think about Paul's description of Timothy in verses 20 to 21. I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare and prioritize the interest of Jesus above their own. Now again, I don't think I'm saying that. Paul's saying everyone else he knows is selfish. He's just pointing out Timothy is unique because he genuinely cares for others and he puts the interest of Christ above his own. And let's be honest, the way in which Timothy was living is still unique today. Even in today's day and age, maybe especially in today's day and age, most people are not genuinely concerned for the welfare of others and they are not prioritizing the interest of Jesus above their own interests. I mean, think about it this way. Let me, let me give you an example here. When you hear about a marriage that's in trouble... Is your first instinct to get down on your knees and start praying, oh Lord, please rescue this marriage so that your relationship between you and the church might be glorified and so that they might have the joy of knowing restoration? Is that your first instinct? Or is your first instinct to gossip so you can learn more? Or think of it another way. If something bad happens to someone else, is your first gut reaction one of empathy and sorrow which you start praying, Lord, please use this trial to glorify your name and to help them know Jesus more, or do you immediately start to think how that bad news might affect you, and how it might change your life? I'm ashamed to admit that all too often, my instinct in those situations is to view everything through the lens of how it affects me. What do I need to know about this situation, or or how will this news affect me? That's a problem, and to be clear, I don't think it's just a problem for me, As churchgoers, I think we've mastered the art of looking like we care without actually caring. We want to know information because ultimately it affects us. Rather than thinking about the welfare of others or prioritizing the interest of Christ, oftentimes it's about us. That was not the way Timothy was. Timothy was unique because he genuinely cared about the welfare of others and he genuinely prioritized the interest of Jesus above his own. And I would contend this, if we adopted Timothy's mindset, we would have a lot less problems and a lot more joy. How many disputes in the church would go away if we simply prioritize the welfare of others in the interest of Jesus Christ? How many marriage problems would continually dissipate if only both parties said, I'm going to have the, I'm going to have the mindset of Timothy? How much more peace would we have if we stopped caring about our own interests instead started prioritizing the interest of Jesus and the interest of others on a weekly basis or I would guess monthly or yearly basis I would guess the vast majority of our decisions are made through one lens what's best for me right what would help me to have more success what would help me to make more money what would help me to climb up the ladder what would make me look better what would make me feel better what would make my life easier Almost all the decisions we made often go through that type of lens. When we're thinking about day-to-day decisions or even big-picture decisions, should I move? Should I take this job? Those are often the framework by which we make those decisions. It's about us. But what if we started thinking more like Timothy? What if we started asking the question, what would be best for others? What would be best for the church? What would be best for the interest of Christ? Now here's the irony. If we did that, we would actually be happier and have more joy. In other words, you could argue if you were truly selfish, what you should do is prioritize the interest of Christ. Because if you did that, you would have more joy. The path to joy is not found in living for self. It's found in living for others and prioritizing the interest of Christ. So the first question is, will you be a Timothy, caring about the needs of others and prioritizing the interest of Christ above everything else? Application question number two, will you be an Epaphroditus, risking for the sake of the gospel. Now, I love the language of verse 30. Excuse me. Verse 30 says this, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, in general, I would argue we are a pretty risk-averse people. And we're especially risk-averse when it comes to the gospel. We might risk for a business venture. We might risk for an investment. If you're in high school, you might risk and ask someone to go to prom with you. But it seems to me that we take very few risks for the sake of the gospel. Speaking personally, I'm often afraid to risk even my reputation to talk about Christ. I don't want my neighbor next door to think that I'm weird or a religious wacko. But if you think about it, that's pretty weak, isn't it? Excuse me, so is my voice right now. Listen, Epaphroditus risked his life for the sake of the gospel, He risked his life for the sake of the gospel, and I'm afraid that my neighbor might think I'm weird. Listen, if the gospel message is not true, then we should not risk anything. But if it is true, if we really are sinners, and if Christ really did die on the cross for our sins, and if Christ really did raise from the dead, and if the only hope we have is turning to Christ and saving faith, if that's true, and it is, by the way, Then it seems to me it's worth risking everything for. So, church, let me ask you this. In what areas might God be calling you to take a risk for the sake of the gospel? Perhaps God's calling you to say something to your neighbor about Jesus. Or maybe He's calling you to start a Bible study with non believers. Or maybe He's challenging you to change your lifestyle so that you can have more to give to gospel causes. Or maybe He's calling you to go overseas. The hardest places on earth so that people can hear about Christ. The question is, what risk are you willing to take for the gospel? Epaphroditus risked his life. The least we could do, it would seem, is risk our reputation. Epaphroditus risked his life because he loved Jesus and loved others. Will we do the same? Will we be an Epaphroditus? Lastly, will we be a Paul? Application question number three here. Will we be a Paul? Intentionally encouraging others and being encouraged by the church. The way that Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus in this passage is worth noting. And it had to be encouraging for Timothy and Epaphroditus. For Timothy to hear Paul say, I have no one like you. You are like a son to me. That had to be encouraging. For Epaphroditus to hear Paul say, you are a fellow soldier, a fellow worker in the gospel. My brother. No one like you. Honor you. That too had to be encouraging. Encouraging. Now, I think it's worth noting that the way in which he encourages these two men is tied to gospel realities. In other words, he doesn't encourage Timothy by saying, Timothy, you are so great at racquetball. You're awesome. Or Paphroditus, your haircut looks really good. No, he encourages them in the gospel. He says, you're loving others. You're loving Jesus. Because of that, you're like a son. Because of that, you should be honored. Nonetheless, though, the point is he's encouraging them. And my question for us is, do we do this for others? When was the last time you encouraged your spouse with language like Paul uses here? When was the last time you encouraged your kids or your parents or a fellow church member with using language that Paul uses in this passage? Listen, we should intentionally encourage others in Christ. And we should be close enough to those in the church that they can encourage us also. By church here, let me be clear. I don't mean a building or a religious organization. I mean the body of Christ. I mean the people. Paul's joy and encouragement was tied to other Christians. Have you allowed yourself to get in deep enough relationships with other Christians that they are encouraging you for your joy and your encouragement? Like Paul, we should seek to encourage the church, but we should also be encouraged by the church. All that to say, I understand that at first glance, a passage like this seems odd. Why should we care about Paul's travel plans? But the more you dive in, the more you realize there is treasure here. Specifically, we have this unique insight into the character of Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul. And I think that insight should give us motivation to want to live more like them. To be like Timothy, caring about the welfare of others and prioritizing the interests of Christ. To be like Epaphroditus, risking for the gospel. To be like Paul, encouraging others and being encouraged. So church, listen, I don't have a fancy jingle for you this morning, be like Epaphroditus. I don't have that. But what I can encourage you this morning is to be like Timothy, to be like Epaphroditus, and to be like Paul, and to do so for the glory of God, but ultimately to do so for your own joy. Because as we live like this, it's then that we'll experience the joy of knowing Jesus more. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would help us to be more like Timothy, more like Epaphroditus, more like Paul. We pray that you would help us to do this for our own joy and for your glory, Father, we pray that we would set aside our own interests and care for the care for the welfare of others like Timothy did. We pray that we'd be willing to risk for the sake of the gospel like Epaphroditus. And we pray that like Paul, we would be encouraging to others and we would seek to be encouraged by others also. But Lord, for this to happen, we know that it will require a work of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you do this for your glory and for our good.